0: I asked Dr. Miller to review a number of aspects to this woman's case, beginning with the use of the Oncotype DX assay to help identify patients with node-negative tumors who would benefit from chemotherapy.
1: I think it's been a huge advantage for our patients. When we talked about predicting the risk of recurrence, we focused on a small number of pretty simple factors, lymph nodes, tumor size, estrogen receptor, HER2 receptor, and the tumor grade. Those are very important things, but they're pretty simple things. What has been possible over the last couple of years is to get, in essence, the fingerprint of genes that a tumor expresses. So the Oncotype DX test looks not just at two or three or four factors. It looks at 21 different genes that are expressed in breast cancers. These are not genes that are inherited or passed in families. These are genes that all breast cancers have just to a greater or lesser degree. So it measures all 21 and then puts them through a complicated mathematical formula. So not all of these genes are given the same importance or the same weight. But at the end of that formula, it spits out a number. And that number can be anywhere from 0 to 100.
0: And that's called the recurrence score.
1: That's called the recurrence score. And this was done... Initially and currently it only applies to the group of patients that we have the most difficulty in making decisions about chemotherapy. And those would be the patients who have estrogen-positive tumors that don't involve the lymph nodes. And the reason the decisions about chemotherapy are so difficult for that group of women is as a group, they have a very low risk of recurrence, and they get benefit from hormone therapy. So the improvements that we get with chemotherapy can range from 1% to 3 to 4%. And if you think about whether a 2% improvement in your chances of being alive that may mean a difference of going from 90% to 92% justifies the side effects of chemotherapy, that's not a particularly easy or a particularly comfortable question for patients or oncologists. So when this test was developed, it focused on that group. And what they found was that recurrence score number that goes from 0 to 100 Predicted very nicely what was the risk of recurrence in those patients if they were treated with tamoxifen alone, if they didn't get chemotherapy. And the first year the test was available, that's all we knew. And quite honestly, I didn't find that very helpful. Because if you just told me this woman has a higher risk of recurrence with tamoxifen alone than what I might have otherwise predicted, I didn't know what to do with that. You're going to make me worry, but I didn't know if that's a patient who really needs chemotherapy. Is this someone who needs a different form of hormone therapy? Or is this someone who has aggressive breast cancer who's going to have a high risk of recurrence no matter what I do? Since then, we've done this test in patients treated in a different study that looked at directly comparing tamoxifen alone or tamoxifen with chemotherapy, and I think that's what made this a particularly helpful test for us. So from that study, we know that women who have a low recurrence score, so totals of 18 or lower, not only had a very low risk of recurrence on tamoxifen alone, they didn't seem to derive any benefit from adding chemotherapy. Now, women on the other side who had a high recurrence score, higher than 31, had a much higher risk of recurrence on tamoxifen alone than we otherwise would have predicted, but they also had a huge benefit from chemotherapy, more than 25% absolute improvement in their risk of recurrence by adding a pretty simple older chemotherapy regimen. Now, what was important about this is about half the women fell into that low-risk group, about a quarter fell into the high-risk group. So for this group of women who I otherwise would have had to struggle with whether 2 or 3% was worthwhile, half of them get the pleasure of hearing me say, you don't need chemotherapy at all, and your risk of recurrence is very low. A quarter of them don't like me much because they hear they really need chemotherapy, but the good news is they get a huge benefit. And with chemotherapy, their risk of recurrence becomes almost as good. As the low-risk women, it's just that they need chemotherapy to get there. And unfortunately, we're left with the group of women in the middle, intermediate recurrence scores, where we're still not sure, where they probably don't get much benefit from chemotherapy, but it might not be zero. It might be in that 2 to 3% range that we struggle with. So that's the group now that is the focus of a recently opened trial to directly compare hormone therapy or hormone therapy with chemotherapy. But it makes decisions that used to be tough for everybody only difficult for about a quarter of those women.
0: Now, what about patients who have tumors that are node positive or that are estrogen receptor negative? Can the Alcotype test be used in those patients?
1: At this point, no. We certainly wonder... What the relative importance we should give to something like the oncotype test in women who are estrogen positive but have involvement of some lymph nodes, and that just has not been studied yet. so currently the test is really only appropriate for women who are estrogen positive and lymph node negative. There are studies looking at this test in women with positive lymph nodes to try and see what it might add to our information and how it might help us in decisions for those women. The test really would not be appropriate for women whose tumors are estrogen negative. Because a big component of that score has to do with the estrogen positivity in genes that are related to estrogen. But we're working on trying to develop a similar test in tumors that are estrogen negative. But we expect different genes will be important, so it will need a different test. But we're trying to develop the same thing to help those women in their decisions.
0: So can you talk a little more specifically about how this assay is utilized in practice?
1: I use this assay in most of my patients who have estrogen positive tumors that are lymph node negative. There are a couple of exceptions. I still occasionally see women who, for various personal reasons and their own philosophy, say, I am not taking chemotherapy. It doesn't matter what you tell me, what you tell me my risk might be or the benefits might be. That's not something that I'm ever doing. Well, if a woman has already clearly made that decision and knows that the results of this test will not sway her, even if she's in the high-risk group, then there's really no point in ordering the test. Similarly, for some of my older patients or patients who have substantial other health problems where I'm uncomfortable in my ability to give them chemotherapy safely, then this test also is not going to sway our decisions and there would be no point in ordering it. But short of those situations, I think it's a test patients should know about and think about whether that would help them make decisions. I think it's particularly important because there are patients whose risk based on this test ends up being substantially lower than we might have predicted based on those simple factors who otherwise would have been recommended to get chemotherapy, who might be spared those side effects. But there are also women who we might have thought had a much lower risk of recurrence who really are in a much worse situation and really need chemotherapy. So it really can change decisions for some of those patients.
0: The patient we interviewed for this program was premenopausal at first diagnosis. And because her tumor was estrogen receptor positive, adjuvant endocrine therapy is standard. In premenopausal patients, the usual treatment is tamoxifen, while in postmenopausal patients, the most common therapy is an aromatase inhibitor. This patient chose to receive an unproven therapy that is currently being evaluated in clinical trials, the use of ovarian suppression or removal of the ovaries to create a postmenopausal hormonal state, and then the addition of an aromatase inhibitor. Dr. Miller commented on adjuvant hormonal
1: therapy. Hormonal therapy, my patients tell me, we really should call anti-hormone therapy because it confuses people. They often think we're talking about giving them estrogen, and they've already heard that they don't want that. But it's a shorthand way of talking about therapies that work by somehow interfering or blocking the function of estrogen. And that can be one of the most effective ways to treat tumors that are sensitive to estrogen or use estrogen to support their growth. And there are a couple of different ways that you can do that. For about 20 or 30 years, the only option or the only way that that was commonly done was with tamoxifen, which works by blocking the effects of estrogen in the body. It doesn't stop the body from making estrogen, but it's sort of like putting up an umbrella so that you don't get wet in the rain. It's still raining, but you stay relatively dry and you don't get the effects. There are some other options for postmenopausal women now who have much lower estrogen levels In postmenopausal women, most of the estrogen that we have comes from the conversion of other hormones that our adrenal glands make to estrogen. And that happens in the liver. It happens in the muscle and in our fat tissue. It actually can happen inside some hormone-sensitive breast cancer cells. And that conversion is done by an enzyme called aromatase. So there are drugs that work by blocking that enzyme called the aromatase inhibitors, and they further lower estrogen levels in postmenopausal women. Now, since the ovaries don't use aromatase to make estrogen, those drugs really are not effective in premenopausal women, but those drugs are now another option for adjuvant hormone therapy in postmenopausal women. Those drugs have been directly compared to tamoxifen in the adjuvant setting in a couple of different strategies, either as the initial therapy directly compared to tamoxifen Or in strategies where women might take tamoxifen for two or three years, then switch to an aromatase inhibitor. Or women who've been on tamoxifen for a longer period of time, four to five years, and then switch to an aromatase inhibitor. And all of those studies have found lower rates of recurrence in women who were treated with an aromatase inhibitor who were postmenopausal compared to just getting treated with tamoxifen. For the women up front, it becomes a much longer discussion than it used to be. It used to be talking to women about chemotherapy took a long time and the hormone therapy part was easy. Now, if anything, talking to them about hormone therapy takes longer than discussions about chemotherapy. I think women still need to hear about tamoxifen and hear that there are two options. None of those trials at this point had found an overall survival benefit. There are differences in their side effect profile and whether one is more or better tolerated is quite individual and different from patient to patient. So I still think it's perfectly reasonable and that women should hear it, that we have a couple of options for hormone therapy. This is what we know about tamoxifen. This is what we know about the aromatase inhibitors. Their side effects are different. And I probably still have about 20% of my postmenopausal women who've heard sometimes issues of cost because there's a huge differential in cost of those two for women who have to pay out of pocket, tamoxifen is still a very reasonable option for those women, especially to start with.
0: When you start an aromatase inhibitor upfront in those eighty percent, which one do you use?
1: They all get anastrozole. I should say all, with very few exceptions. I mean that until just very recently is the only one we had upfront data with. We now have upfront data with letrozole. I honestly suspect that the differences between the three are major biochemical differences, but I'm not at all convinced that that translates into clinical differences. But we don't have direct comparison data yet, so I tend to stick fairly close to this is the one that was studied in the setting that is closest to your setting. So if we're going to do this, we should use this one.
0: What about the side effects and risks of hormonal therapy?
1: Well, the side effects are predominantly what you would expect based on how they work. So they work by either lowering the estrogen levels in the body or blocking the effects of estrogen. So the side effects are very much like menopause. The most common one that women notice are hot flashes, either that they didn't have before or that are more troublesome or more frequent than before. They will often notice joint stiffness or creakiness, particularly first thing in the morning or after periods of inactivity or sitting for a long time. They may notice trouble with some vaginal atrophy or vaginal dryness. Tamoxifen can occasionally cause a slight vaginal discharge, which for postmenopausal women can sometimes actually be helpful if they already had some trouble with vaginal dryness. But there are some side effects that are different between the two that are important for women to know about. Tamoxifen also has a slight increase in the risk of blood clots and a slight increase in the risk of endometrial cancer or uterine cancer. Now those risks are pretty tiny, but for women who have a very low risk of recurrence of their breast cancer, those risks start to become more important in the decisions about their therapy. The aromatase inhibitors don't have an effect on the endometrium, and they don't have an increase in the risk of blood clots. But because they work by lowering the estrogen levels, they can accelerate bone loss and may increase the risk of osteoporosis or further bone loss or bone fractures. So particularly for postmenopausal women, that's an important side effect that they need to be aware of.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about the blood clots, what the risk is, and what kinds of blood clots occur with tamoxifen?
1: The risk of blood clots with tamoxifen overall is about one out of 100 women who take tamoxifen for five years are likely to develop a blood clot. And that's probably about twice or more the risk of that same 100 women if they had not taken tamoxifen.
0: And when you say blood clots, where do they occur?
1: Well, the blood clots we worry most about are the blood clots that occur in the legs. But in some women, those blood clots may break off from the vein in the leg and travel to the lungs, where they can block off blood flow to the lungs and cause trouble breathing. And that's something that in an even smaller group of women can be life-threatening.
0: What about the endometrial cancer? How serious is this as
1: a health threat to the women? I think this is one that we can make sound huge or trivial depending on how we talk about the same numbers. So to make it sound huge, what I would tell you is that tamoxifen doubles the risk of endometrial cancer, which is absolutely true. But what's important is that endometrial cancer is a very uncommon cancer, and it's Easily identified in a very early stage because women present with vaginal bleeding. And postmenopausal women just aren't allowed to have vaginal bleeding. If they're having any vaginal bleeding, they need to get that evaluated. So making a very uncommon cancer twice as common still leaves you with an uncommon cancer. We also know that the endometrial cancer was more likely in older, obese postmenopausal women. So I don't think it's something that particularly premenopausal women should be that concerned about.
0: What kinds of hormonal therapy are used in the premenopausal woman?
1: Premenopausal women are still predominantly treated with tamoxifen because it works by blocking the effects of estrogen. So it's equally effective for premenopausal and postmenopausal women. One of the long-running debates that we've had is whether if you are a premenopausal woman with an estrogen-sensitive tumor, would you be better off if we stopped your ovaries from functioning? either by taking out the ovaries or giving you another medicine as an injection that stopped your ovaries from making estrogen. That was actually one of the first forms of therapy for breast cancer was to just take out the ovaries. It was only about 50 years later that we started understanding why that worked in some women and not in others. What hasn't been clear though is if you're getting our other modern therapies, so you're getting tamoxifen, you may have gotten chemotherapy, you've had surgery, you may have had radiation. If you've gotten the benefits of all of those things, is there still additional benefit to making you menopausal? Because making a premenopausal woman postmenopausal has some side effects and some potential long-term health consequences of its own. And that's a question that we just don't have a good answer for yet. So there's currently an ongoing trial trying to ask and hopefully answer that very important question.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about the aromatase inhibitors in terms of the side effects and complications that occur?
1: There are three aromatase inhibitors currently available. Arimidex, or anastrozole, is one. Letrozole, or Femara, is another. And Exemestane or aromasin, is the third one. They all do the same thing as far as inhibiting the aromatase enzyme and decreasing estrogen levels. So some of their side effects are quite similar. Even though these are postmenopausal women, they may still notice exacerbation of hot flashes or hot flashes that had abated that are now coming back. They commonly do notice some increase in joint stiffness and creakiness. They may notice more issues with vaginal dryness. And we certainly worry about decreases in bone density and increasing osteoporosis in those women. Those are probably the most common side effects that they share in common.
0: What can be done to prevent the bone loss or the increased risk of fracture?
1: I think the biggest thing that can be done to prevent the bone loss is making sure that women and their physicians are aware of the potential for bone loss and are following their bone density because this is not a problem that all women encounter. We do have very good information from a couple of large studies now that adding medicines called bisphosphonates, whether it's with Fosamax or Beneva or there's several others available on the market, can really eliminate the bone loss with the aromatase inhibitors. So rather than seeing bone continuing to decrease, the bone essentially remains stable if you add those other medicines.
0: And when you use hormonal therapy, how long is it used for?
1: That's also a question that's changing. For a couple of decades, tamoxifen was the only one around. We were able to study different durations of therapy. And we learned that taking tamoxifen for a longer period of time, up to five years, gave you increasing benefits. But 10 years wasn't any better than five years. So five years became the magic number. When we first started studying the aromatase inhibitors, the five-year duration was picked so that it wouldn't complicate the comparison, and no one could say, well, it's not that the new drug is better, it's that you gave one drug for seven years and one for five years. So we are just now starting to study the optimal duration of therapy with the aromatase inhibitors, and those early studies are going to look at longer, continuing the duration of therapy beyond an initial five years. Now, in some of those studies, we're already treating patients longer than five years, particularly the one study that looked at women who had been on tamoxifen for roughly five years and then added an aromatase inhibitor for another five years, gets you up to a total duration of 10 years. But that may not be the ultimate right duration.
0: What about aromatase inhibitors in premenopausal women?
1: Well, that really wouldn't give them much benefit or any benefit. They still have the aromatase enzymes. They still make that conversion of other steroids. But that accounts for at most 10% of the estrogen that premenopausal women have. So lowering that is really not going to meaningfully change their estrogen levels and really wouldn't have any effect on their risk of recurrence of their breast cancer.
0: The patient we interviewed for this program had recently completed her adjuvant chemotherapy when the initial results of the adjuvant trastuzumab trials were presented. And like many patients in this situation, this woman ended up receiving so-called delayed adjuvant herceptin. I asked Dr. Miller to comment on this treatment strategy.
1: Before Herceptin was available, the HER2-positive tumors we tended to think of as the most aggressive and the most dangerous to women who were newly diagnosed and both who had overt metastatic disease. They tended to have a higher risk of recurrence and a shorter overall survival. That has really completely changed with the incorporation of Herceptin, which is an antibody that stops the function of that HER2 growth factor. And adding Herceptin to whatever other therapy... That patients receiving, which likely included chemotherapy and may also have included antiestrogen therapy if their tumor had both HER2 and the estrogen receptor, decreases the recurrence by about half again. So whatever remaining risk you're left with after you've gotten the benefits of those other therapies, adding Herceptin will cut that risk in half. And that's a striking benefit for those patients and has really made this a group of patients who went from having one of the worst prognoses to really flipping and becoming one of the best. Trastuzumab or Herceptin is an antibody that binds to the HER2 growth factor. That's a growth factor that about 20 to 25% of breast cancers have. And there were several trials that all sort of came to giving us results within a fairly short time that looked at whether women who had HER2 positive breast cancer, meaning it had that growth factor, did better with chemotherapy by itself or chemotherapy with Herceptin added. Now, many of these women got other therapies. They had surgery or radiation or hormone therapy based on other features of their tumor. But the key question of this study was Herceptin or no Herceptin with the other therapies being standard. And all of those trials found remarkably consistent results. And I think it truly is remarkable how consistent they were because the trials all had slightly different criteria for which patients could enroll. Some required you to have lymph node involvement. Some allowed patients who were node negative to enroll. They had different chemotherapy regimens that they used. Some of them had different durations of Herceptin or different timing of when the Herceptin was added. And despite all of those differences, the main question of Herceptin versus not gave the same answer. And in each of those trials, the risk of recurrence was decreased by about half in the women who got Herceptin compared to those who didn't.
0: That was over and above any decrease they might get with chemotherapy or hormone therapy.
1: Exactly, because all of these women got some other form of therapy. Usually chemotherapy, and if their tumors were estrogen positive, they would have also gotten hormone therapy.
0: That was really a major breakthrough, and that was May 2005. That was really a major moment in breast cancer clinical research.
1: It's a huge improvement, and I think or at least we hope it's the first of many that will come. And it's unique in that Herceptin was developed really based on good science and understanding the biology of breast cancer. So many of our other chemotherapies were sort of developed empirically. They were often extracted from plants, and you found if you put them on cancer cells, it made the cells stop growing. But we didn't understand a lot about why or how to select patients for them. Herceptin actually was developed in a different way. We looked at breast cancers that were more aggressive and found the most aggressive breast cancers had this HER2 protein. And patients who had that HER2 protein on their tumors were more likely to recur after first diagnosis, and they didn't live as long after they had a recurrence. And this therapy was developed specifically to inhibit that growth factor that we had identified in the laboratory as being important. So now it comes full circle and goes back to the clinic and shows that This approach really works. If you understand the biology of the breast cancer, you develop a therapy to specifically block or inhibit it in a way that makes sense and then move that back to the clinic, it's not only effective, but you get a much bigger improvement in the results than the small incremental improvements we'd made in the past.
0: So is Herceptin now used as adjuvant therapy in all women with HER2-positive tumors?
1: Almost all. There are still a lot of questions about Herceptin, And that's one thing patients need to understand as well, that good results from a trial or results from well-done science often pose many more questions than they answer. So there are patients that we still struggle with, patients who have a very small tumor, who have a very low risk of recurrence, but whose tumors are HER2 positive. What about those patients? If their tumors are so small that you wouldn't contemplate chemotherapy, should you still think about giving those women Herceptin? How long should you give women Herceptin? What about those women who were diagnosed with HER2-positive disease a year or two or three ago before we had these results, who didn't participate in those trials or maybe did participate in the trial but didn't get Herceptin? Should we go back and give those women Herceptin now? And if those women are getting Herceptin, what's the best way to do it? What's the best chemotherapy partner? And how should we best integrate it in terms of the timing with their other therapies? All of those questions will be the subjects of future studies.
0: But meanwhile, doctors have to make decisions or have to make recommendations. So let me pick out a few of those points you just mentioned. What about duration of the trastuzumab treatment? How long is it done for?
1: Most of the studies gave Herceptin for a year. Now, this was a completely arbitrary number. And it was picked based on a couple of practical considerations. Herceptin in most of the trials was given on a a once-a-week basis. It's an IV infusion. And at the time, we didn't know if this would work. We certainly hoped so. But you were asking women to potentially commit to a year of weekly IV infusions for a drug that we couldn't tell them we knew would help. And we thought we could get patients to commit to a year. There was concern that we couldn't get them to commit to longer than that. But there was also concern about a shorter duration. And if you gave Herceptin for only a short duration and you didn't see an improvement, well, the natural question would be maybe you just didn't give it for long enough. So we also thought if you gave Herceptin for a year and you saw no improvement, it would be pretty hard to make that argument, that it just wasn't long enough. So it was a balance of those factors.
0: So what's the typical sequence of how things go in terms of the chemotherapy in Herceptin?
1: There are a couple of different sequences, and the trials did this a little bit differently. Some of the trials gave a portion of the chemotherapy first, the portion with adriamycin or epirubicin, because you really can't combine those drugs with Herceptin without increasing the risk of heart problems more dramatically. And then they started the Herceptin with the second part of the chemotherapy, which was usually a taxane, and then continued the Herceptin for total duration of the year. There was a large trial in Europe that used many different chemotherapy regimens that used an entirely sequential approach. So you got all of your chemotherapy. And when you were done with the chemotherapy, then you started the Herceptin. We really, at this point, don't have a direct comparison of those two different strategies or two different timings. One of the U.S.-led trials actually had three arms that looked at no Herceptin, Herceptin starting with the taxane part of the chemotherapy, or you finish all the chemotherapy and then start the Herceptin. But that trial will need more follow-up and more information to be able to compare those two Herceptin-containing arms.
0: What about the side effects or downsides of Herceptin in this situation?
1: We can talk about the side effects in a couple of different ways. One is it's an IV infusion, and it's typically given for a year. So it goes on and extends the total duration that patients are getting treated for their breast cancer quite substantially. Now, Herceptin by itself doesn't have all the chemotherapy side effects. So hair's grown back, doesn't affect the blood counts, there's no trouble with nausea. So other than the annoyance, if you will, of coming in for the infusion, women are feeling quite well when they're just getting the Herceptin. We also now know that Herceptin can be given every three weeks, and I think many of us when women are at that point where they're just getting Herceptin have switched to the every three-week schedule, which makes this much less onerous commitment for patients. The side effect we worry about is the potential impact on the heart, and Herceptin by itself has very little impact on the heart, but Herceptin given after adriamycin or epirubicin is a little more likely to cause heart problems or weakening of the heart muscle. Now, overall, that occurred in about 3 to 4% of patients who had gotten adriamycin or epirubicin and then got Herceptin. I wouldn't say it's a huge problem, but it's one that's potentially serious. So that's one that patients need to know about, and oncologists need to follow the heart function of patients while they're getting Herceptin to make certain that they're not seeing any impact.
0: Are there any chemotherapy agents that can be combined with Herceptin without using anthracycline or adriamycin where they wouldn't get the potential for cardiac damage?
1: There definitely are, because the cardiac damage is really only with adriamycin and epirubicin. So one of the other U.S.-led trials looked at, again, three arms, no Herceptin, a group that got AC, the adriamycin and cytoxin, followed by docetaxel or taxotere with Herceptin, and a group that didn't get adriamycin. They got taxotere with a different chemotherapy medicine, carboplatin and Herceptin. We know that both of the groups that got Herceptin did much better than the third arm of the study that didn't get Herceptin. But similar to the other three-arm study that looked at giving Herceptin with chemotherapy or entirely sequentially, it's going to take longer follow-up to really get a good comparison of those two Herceptin-containing regimens.
0: So typically what happens then is the patient will get chemotherapy with a Herceptin, and the chemo stopped, and Herceptin's continued for a year. Correct. What about just giving the Herceptin without any chemotherapy?
1: Well, that's one of the questions that we don't have an answer to. And that question would really apply to a couple of groups of patients. One would be the patients who have very small tumors that are not in the lymph nodes, who have a very low risk of recurrence, but their tumors are too positive, which makes us worry about them a bit more. But it's hard to think about recommending six months of chemotherapy for somebody with a one centimeter node negative tumor because their risk of recurrence, even if they're too positive is not very high, and we simply don't know in those group of patients what the benefit of just giving them Herceptin would be. The other group of patients that I've heard this mentioned that I'm a little less swayed by are the older patients with multiple other health problems where you would worry about their ability to tolerate chemotherapy, I think that's a reasonable question, but then I think we also have to be a bit honest with ourselves about what really is their risk of dying from their breast cancer versus these other health problems that we find so severe that chemotherapy really is off the table, because for many of them, I suspect their breast cancer is really not their biggest long-term health problem, and it makes that an even tougher question.
0: You mentioned the possibility of using Herceptin in a delayed fashion. The patient maybe got treated with chemotherapy a year or two or three years ago, still is at risk to develop a recurrence. What do we know about using Herceptin at that time point?
1: nothing. We have very little information about delayed treatment. In fact, the only information we have comes from the one European trial that allowed patients to get one of many different chemotherapy regimens based on what would be considered standard for their situation in their country. That trial also required patients who needed radiation to finish their radiation before they then entered the trial. So on average, those patients had completed their chemotherapy about three months before they entered the trial and started Herceptin. But some of them were out to almost nine months by the time they enrolled in the trial. And that trial still found benefit. So certainly for patients who are six to nine months, perhaps even a year from finishing their chemotherapy, I think you could use the results of that trial to support benefit of adding Herceptin. But that doesn't really address the patient who had multiple involved lymph nodes and a very high risk of recurrence, but diagnosed two or three years ago. And that becomes much more difficult because her risk of recurrence was also highest earlier. Her risk of recurrence is a bit lower now because of the time that's gone by. But it certainly is not zero, and we have really no information on what the benefit of Herceptin in those patients might be. I think that's one of those very difficult discussions that leads to all different recommendations from different oncologists. And once and honestly, I think patients need to be involved in when we just have no good answers.